recording. Okay, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Dr. David Cantor, C-A-N-T-E-R. He's coming to us from the UK, and we're going to talk about his original book that he published about criminal profiling or uh, using investigative psychology. The title of that book is Criminal Shadows, Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer, published originally in 1994. There's a recent publication on December 21st, 2015. He's also written Investigative Psychology, Offender Profiling and Analysis of Criminal Action in 2009. Another book is Mapping Murder, The Secrets of Geographical Profiling. Uh, That recent publication or uh, republication was 2019. And also Forensic Psychology for Dummies. Um, He was formerly Professor of Psychology at the University of Liverpool, England, where he is still an emeritus professor. And one of the most important cases that he worked on, and he covers this in the book Criminal Shadows, is regarded as the, or referred to as the Railway Rapist Case. So we're going to talk about the book and talk about, do some case studies. Um, But Dr. David Cantor, are you there? Hello there, yes. Good to talk to you. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you agreeing to this interview. And uh, for people who don't know your name, can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you became uh, interested in this, the subject of criminal profiling using investigative psychology? Well, it's quite an unusual and somewhat involved uh, story because I started off after finishing my degree in psychology working in a school of architecture. And just to do it as briefly as possible, I started looking at the design of buildings uh, for escape in emergencies and and looked at a lot of of buildings on fire and how people behaved. And because of that, I started looking at police accounts that they collected um, when there's a fatality in a fire. In Britain, if there's a fatality in a fire, the police initially treat it as a possible murder inquiry. So they interview everybody who's available and who might have experienced what was going on. And I was able to get access to those police statements to build up a picture of how people behave in emergencies. And because I was doing that, when the British police at Scotland Yard began to be aware of what the FBI were claiming was this great breakthrough in, in offender profiling, they started looking for a an experienced senior psychologist in Britain who could give them some advice about it, uh, about these profiles. I mean, quite rightly, the British police uh, who were looking at the claims f- coming out of the FBI, they were suspicious. They thought either this was being oversold, because I'm afraid we do have this view in Britain sometimes that there's a tradition of of, of really uh, pushing and publicising things which might not have so, quite so much stature as it, as being claimed. But also, even if it was of use, if this profiling from the FBI really was of use, perhaps it wasn't relevant to Britain because we have a very different pattern of criminal activity in Britain. Uh, we don't have the same bizarre serial killings um, that you get in America. And we don't have, have the same gun crime because we don't have guns. I've never held um, an actual firearm right. um, in my life. Um, so uh, they 
were the the British police were quite curious about that, and they found the way to me because they'd heard I'd been working with police witness statements and and analysing something close to um, criminal activity, um, and asked me if I'd have a look at this um, profiling claims that were coming from the United States. Well, when I looked into it, what I realised was that the FBI were really operating like um, experienced, intelligent, well-informed police officers, that there wasn't really any proper research behind um, what they were doing. Um, uh, and uh, therefore, I said, look, there's interesting ideas coming out of uh, Quantico, out of the FBI training center, um, but there's really no substance to it. Um, what we need is some proper research. Well, before I managed to get started on that research. Um, the police came to me uh, with a series of rapes um, that had, me, had been carried out around London um, and some murders that they tied into those rapes because there were some details that went on in the rapes, um, particularly the way in which the victims uh, were um, bound. Uh, they actually fastened their two thumbs together with um, with some sort of uh, shoestring or something like that. And that, the bodies that were found had a similar sort of binding on them. So they, they linked the, these murders and the rapes together. Um, and because they'd been talking to me about this whole idea of, of profiling, um, they basically, I mean, I still remember it to this very day, the, the senior police officer running the whole investigation said to me, uh, can you help us catch this man before he kills again? Um, I'd not had any involvement with the police. And you, um, were, you were a professor in Liverpool at the time. And these, these were well, actually, I was, a, I was a professor in the south of England okay, in, a, in a university called uh, University of Surrey, which is in Guildford, which is about... Um, it's about um, an, an hour's drive um, from London. Um, so I was in the south of England at that stage. Um, uh, and I was nearer London and therefore nearer the, um, the whole um, investigation process. So I actually became part of the investigation team and prepared some account of, these, um, of, of the unknown suspects uh, based on my background work, actually, in architecture, in, in 1977, I published a book called The Psychology of Place that studied uh, and reviewed how we make sense of our surroundings, how we how we use them, um, how we build up uh, mental maps of uh, what is going on in our surroundings. Um, and that, together with the study of patterns of behavior from the work on on what happens in emergencies, I drew on those sort of basic principles um, to give some guidance uh, to the police. And it turned out to be very useful. The police, um, the police actually, once they'd arrested the, the man and, and realized they had the right person, they got in touch and they said, you know, the, the advice you gave us, David, was, was very helpful indeed. Um, and on the back of that, I then uh, began to be asked to help on other cases. And because I was being given information about other cases, I was able to start building up 
a, a, a database, a dossier of what goes on in crimes and who, what sort of things different criminals do and how that all operates so that I was able to start building up a, rich, a research framework. And so in around about 1991, I realized that there was a whole area of psychology of relevance to police investigations that didn't have a name. And it was not just profiling. It was how you, interva how you interview uh, offenders, how you interview um, victims, um, witnesses, um, all sorts of issues like uh, false allegations and uh, false confessions. Um, lots of psychological issues there, issues about police decision-making, what influences how police make decisions, how you can um, inform those decisions much more effectively. And I realized this whole bundle of, of activities all related to each other, how you collect the information in, a, in a, an investigation, how you make inferences about it, how you then turn those inferences into actions that can be performed uh, by the police to get more information and eventually bring the case to court. All of that uh, operated together, and I gave it the name investigative psychology. And somewhat to my surprise, I found an awful lot of people wanted to study that with me. Um, and I very quickly had a, a big group of, of very capable students working with me um, Lots of cases um, about uh, over the over the next few years from over the the 1990s, and I perhaps contributed perhaps a hundred investigations, um, uh, but really more importantly, built up a research base and a whole set of theories and methodologies um, to the, develop the new discipline of investigative psychology, and uh, that was so successful that a much more major, larger university, the University of Liverpool, were very keen to attract me to be based there with my team of, of researchers and, uh, and, and graduate students. And that's when I moved to Liverpool, um, really in 19, something like 1995, I was already set up at Liverpool running a master's programme in investigative psychology and having a number of of doctoral students, and it just took off from there, the whole field of investigative psychology. And it was rather uh, rather pleasant from my point of view, because the University of Liverpool was where I got my, uh, my degrees, my first degree and my um, doctorate I got from the University of Liverpool. So I was really re returning to, to my roots uh, and, and was really there for about 15 years um, developing this whole field of investigative psychology. And how would you, so describing investigative psychology, how would you, I mean, you talk about some of the principles in this book. I didn't read the Offender Profiling and Analysis of Criminal Action book, but you do talk about some of the steps that, that you use uh, behaviorally to deter, you know, to kind of investigate a case. Can you talk about that? Yes, it's important, though, to emphasize that it's the whole package of the investigation. It's not just the idea of generating profiles. It's the whole way in which the investigation is carried out, how the uh, interviews of, of suspects are, or of witnesses are conducted, and how the information that the police collect 
is organized. I mean, one of the things that sets an investigation in process is that the, the police are told something. They have some information. Well, how good is that? How effective is it? How can they improve it? How can they systematize it? How can they organize it so that they can see the patterns within it? Um, that's a very important part of of getting going. And, and in the early days, I used to give the police a list of the information that was needed in order to be able to give them some guidance in the investigation. And in the great majority of cases, they then solve the case um, without me needing to do anything else other than to say, you know, have you got some aerial photographs of the crime scene where the body was found? And um, this may be helpful to you in understanding the overall pattern. Have you uh, checked through the whole sequence of events? Um, have you interviewed people carefully um, and uh, used uh, a lots of the psychological techniques we know to get to help people to remember what's going on? And if you do all that effectively, that will often help the police uh, to solve the case. The issue of what you do with that information, which in a sense is what profiling is, because I, I recharacterize profiling as what I call the, um, the uh, profiling equation. You have the actions that occur in the crime and you're trying to make inferences about the characteristics of the offender. How can you build um, a picture um, of what enables you to convert those, uh, what you know about what happens at the crime, um, where it happens, when it happens, how can you draw from that something that will guide the police investigation? Right. And I'm a great believer in in simple, uh, if you like, behavioural issues. And, um, you know, s some profilers talk about getting into the mind of the offender. Well, I think that's nonsense. You, the, uh, In a police inquiry, it doesn't help much to know that an offender doesn't get on very well with his mother or that he's got some sort of... Uh, strange sort of way of seeing the world. What you need to know is, will he be in the police records anywhere? What, what, where should we be looking for? I mean, one of the things that we found, for instance, in our research was that many rapists have a previous criminal history for burglary. So instead of just looking for offenders who've been uh, charged with some sort of sexual offence, perhaps you should be looking uh, for people who have some sort of um, uh, theft activity that is similar to the rape activity. For instance, if they climb into a house in, in order to find a, an isolated victim, are these people who have a history of actually being burglars who climb into a house? If they grab somebody in the street, um, is this somebody who, who has a history of, of generalised aggression? Um, so it's, it's that idea of building up the inferences of what um, what the police can actually deal with. And there are two crucial things that are useful to the police. One is w whether or not the offender is in the criminal records at all, whether they, as we say in Britain, whether they're known to the police. Um, uh, and if so, whereabout in the criminal record should they be looking? And the second thing um, is the location in which the individual may be based. And in fact, that very first case um, of the railway rapist um, that I, drew me into all this in, the, in 1985-86, um, one of the things I said to the 
police was that, well, this is a man who is attacking young women on the street, but he chats to them first and he, he lulls them into some sort of um, confidence that they're, that they're not of any danger and then he attacks them. Well, I said that shows something about his uh, relationships to women and that he is able to develop some sort of relationship, um, but that he will be rather aggressive. So you should be looking in the criminal records for an individual who's known to have had a relationship with a woman, but being aggressive to them. The other thing I pointed out was that where the crimes occurred um, had a sort of pattern to them, and they were likely to, certainly the early crimes, were likely to be close to where the offender had a base. And I discuss, obviously, all of this in detail in uh, Criminal Shadows, and in, to some extent, some of the geographical aspects in, in the later book, Ma Mapping Murder, which is now now an audio book, interestingly. I don't know quite whether it'll keep people awake at night, but um, though, though in those books, I discuss these ideas of the location of crimes, which comes out of my background in the psychology of place and how people make sense of their surroundings, um, that, that, uh, that led me to think, you know, people can't be in more than one place at a time, we know criminals don't often travel very far to commit crimes. So, sometimes they will go some distance, but often they'll, if the opportunity is local, they'll do it. They commit the crimes locally. So I suggested to the police that they should be looking for someone who had a base near where they committed those early rapes um, and that they would be known to the police for having had a relationship uh, with a woman, but being quite violent in that relationship. So it's pretty straightforward stuff. And that's how they were able to prioritize um, the various suspects they had and to identify the individual who had actually committed the crimes. Right. And one of your chapters in the book is criminal maps. And you talk about this circle hypothesis. But also what was surprising to me is that you would find that 80 percent of the offenders would be inside the circle. And I also found it interesting. You talk there's a vignette of you in a helicopter over, I think it was Birmingham, yeah. looking out and assessing where this rapist would be, these council uh, buildings and, uh, you know, assessing this. I thought that was, that, that the emphasis upon locale was uh, an interesting yeah. aspect of your your book. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the, the first area I operate, uh, first area of psychology I operated in was known as environmental psychology. And some people have claimed that investigative psychology is simply a development of environmental psychology. It's not just about location. You have to understand behavior and what puts people in locations and and the aspects of the behavior that tell you the significance of the locations. But yes, location is, is the key to it all. Um, and uh, by uh, studying uh, many, now many hundreds of of criminals and the patterns of where they commit their crimes in relation to the nature of the crime, we can actually make some estimate of uh, where the offender has a base. And, it, and we can put some interesting mathematics on it. And I actually developed a piece of software called, that I call Dragnet um, that uh, allows people to put in the locations of crimes and give some estimate of where the offender may have some sort of base. It may be where they're, where they're living. It may be um, a, 
a nightclub or a, a bar that they go to and then they go out from there to commit the crimes. In some cases, it's been where their ex-girlfriend uh, was living and they knew the area around where that, where that girlfriend uh, was living. Uh, it, that's why I'm using the word base. But essentially, we're all most vulnerable when we're asleep. And that's our most private and uh, uh, vulnerable situation. And so I always think of a base as where a person may be sleeping for the night. And that's, uh, that, that can, in, in a reasonable proportion of cases, uh, be estimated from where the crimes are committed. Right. And, uh, I mean, you use that kind of example within the railway, railway murder cases where there were the original cases, but it started to branch out from the central kind of circle where I think the guy's name was John Duffy was operating. That, that's right. The, um, the, the interesting thing about that was that the behavioral patterns across a series of crimes showed a development in the planning and determination of the of the offender. Um, the, in the early stages, it was at the weekend and um, there was even some suggestion that they were that they sort of apologized to the victim. But um, but the murders occurred much later in the sequence and were much more planned. Um, so the individuals involved were much more determined. And when you looked at the pattern of the locations, you saw that they were moving outwards from an area um, of northwest London, moving out about 30 miles north uh, east and south um, from that that central location. So the idea that they were becoming more determined, more planned, suggested to me that in a sense you could almost run the film backwards and say in the early stages they really weren't thinking too much about what they were doing. It was very opportunistic and therefore um, that's where uh, they would have a base. And and we've, I've never found that pattern in any other series of crimes ever since as it happens. And I think that's partly because the British police have become much more effective and we just don't have long series. I mean, there were something like 30 rapes and three murders all tied in together. Wow. We don't have that sort of major crime spree in, in Britain uh, these days, uh, the way we did in the 1980s. And you also talked a lot about the book. The common theme was uh, the criminals learning and trying to get into their behavioral patterns and how they adapted um, as the crimes went on. Can you talk about yeah. that? The, yeah, that, 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 that again challenged the idea of a profile. You know, journalists ask, and ask me, oh, we've got this case, somebody's just done something really nasty and horrible. Could you give us a profile of the individual? And what causes serial killers? And I always point out that these particularly serious crimes evolve and develop with the individual. And the individual learns um, from committing crimes and getting away with them. Um, you know, if somebody commits a murder of a stranger because, they, uh, because they're angry with people or because there's some sort of sexual component or there's some bizarre thought processes... But if they commit that murder and get away with it, they're then very dangerous um, uh, because they know how to do that. And the psychological processes that gave rise to it are still present. So they'll go on to do it again. But this time they'll be um, more wary. They'll know what they'll know the risks they took last time. Um, 
and they they will be more likely to get away with it. And as as they move on, they will become basically more skillful in identifying vulnerable victims and in getting away with the crime. So in a sense, I've often, when people say to me, what causes serial killers? I say, well, it's in, actually incompetent policing because if the police had caught the individual after the first murder, they wouldn't have developed and moved on to commit. So we all learn and develop over time in, in various ways. And you've got to think about criminals in terms of the learning and development. You can't do a profile of an offender now. You have to think about how they've come to that. And in fact, the early crimes, there are much better indications than later crimes. Because, I mean, in that case, in the railway rapist case, it sounded like Duffy and his accomplice got more, you you said they got more assured and to dominate, and that's why they kind of egged each other on into uh, greater criminality. That's right, and they planned it more, and they, um, they, 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 they sought out victims more, more cleverly, um, and they decided to kill um, because they realized that the victims could operate as witnesses. Um, and so they decided to, to, to kill the victim. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, as far as like some of these others, you've worked on a lot of like rapist type cases. Can you talk a little bit about the Manchester case and how you uh, analyzed and investigated that? Yeah, that was, there were a series of rapes around uh, Manchester in the south of Manchester. Manchester has, uh, in, in the sort of north of England, has a huge university population. There are there, in, in, there are something like three or four universities there. There's something like 50,000 students um, uh, in a relatively small city. Um, and there, were, there had been nine uh, rapes in which an individual um, had uh, climbed into uh, apartments where there were women sleeping on their own and, and had raped them. And the police were trying to find these individuals. Um, the, the individual who had committed these crimes, and they came to us. They actually sent two police officers down. I was still in Surrey then, and in the south, in the south of England, um, they'd um, uh, they sorry, I've just been interrupted. Um, they um, they they sent two police officers down to from Manchester to to work on the material with me, and. Uh, when we looked at the details of those of that material and actually did some statistical analysis on the patterns of behavior, we were very surprised. I was working then with a, a police officer who was assigned to me to work with me on this this material. Um, we were very surprised at, at the, the very different types of behavior um, in uh, across the crimes. And the um, the because of the earlier case in which Duffy uh, had the railway rapists and murders had gone on to kill, uh, we were a bit worried that we were seeing a pattern of behavior developing um, that would become even more violent. Um, so we, we produced a report um, around this, uh, questioning the variety of, of behaviors. Um, and as um, not long after we sent the report, the police got back in touch with us and said, well, actually, we've now got DNA from three of these crimes. And there are two different DNA patterns. Um, there, so there are two different individuals involved. 
There are two crimes with the same DNA, but there was a third crime with a quite different DNA. So we were able to put that onto the statistical analysis we did, and that enabled us to um, to um, to actually suggest which crimes, which other crimes that they didn't have DNA for were committed by the same person because the behavior was similar, and that the other crimes that had a very different pattern of behavior um, was commi were committed by the other uh, DNA individual. And that helped them to, um, to trace through and, and to find the individual and to get convictions on a, a bundle of crimes um, for each of the two individuals. Interesting. And you, uh, at a certain point early on, you, you traveled to uh, Quantico, Virginia, correct? You met Roy Hazelwood and some yeah, of the after other... the that's right. After the after the success of the very first investigation and and the increasing involvement with the police, um, I I can't remember if we I, I think we were invited. The police officer who worked with me and I, uh, the two of us were invited. Um, to Quantico to to meet up with, with with the people there, and it was Roy Hazelwood, John Douglas, and 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 Bob Ressler were the people that we met, um, and we learnt about their processes and, and what what was going on, and and indeed we gave some lectures to them about the things that we were doing. Interesting. And uh, what was your overall kind of impression of the FBI, and uh, any other impression about the prof? these well-known profilers? There are a few things surprised me. For a start, I realized that we're all quite liberal individuals. They, they weren't the sort of hard-nosed um, rednecks that, um, that I, might, I might have expected. Um, and they were all very intelligent. They were all uh, highly educated and, and widely read. And they had some very interesting ideas about uh, criminals. And so uh, I could see as informed, intelligent individuals. They may have some useful opinions because don't forget, you, you, uh, the, the situation in, the, in America, in the States is very different from Britain. In, the state, in Britain, we have about 40 different law, uh, law enforcement agencies, 40 different police forces. Um, and that means some of our police forces are huge. I mean, the, the Metropolitan Police that has its head office at at Scotland Yard, they employ about 30,000 police officers. Wow. So that means that they can have very specialist individuals who are very experienced, say, in murder investigations. It's quite different in, in the United States. In the United States, there's thousands, perhaps 15,000, 18,000 different law enforcement agencies, often only with a very small number of people involved. So they don't have a lot of expertise. Um, uh, so if an unusual crime occurs, um, they and they need some guidance as to how to investigate it and think about it. And the FBI was set up to to contribute to that, to improve the overall quality of of local police investigations. So um, these um, uh, the people at Quantico, the, these um, special agents and, uh, who run the training courses, their their job is to try and improve the general. Um, investigative skills and legal understanding of these people across the United States. Um, uh, so I could see how um, uh, the, these people I met, um, Douglas Restler, Hazelwood, 
how they could be of use to the police. But what I realized is that they had absolutely no background in psychological research. And they didn't know, really know what research was about and how to do it. And in fact, I remember quite distinctly that John Douglas said to me, um, I'm not interested in research. It'll only interfere with my intuition. Wow. Well, I come out of a very, you know, I come out of a very scientific psychological background. And, you know, I just couldn't think of, of offering up an opinion unless there was some scientific basis to it, some evidence, some facts you could draw on. Um, so, so I realized that was another thing that made me decide to get away from the idea of profiling, which has got a, t a whole mythology surrounding it. Yes. And really um, develop a, a new discipline with a different name, um, which is why I came up with investigative psychology. I mean, I think that their their uh, thing was the behavioral science unit. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, well, they knew, sorry to interrupt. But that's they, right. they, they, they knew the labels to put on things. Right. Gotcha. But, um, but it, but there was no real behavioral science there. I'm sorry. No. It, the, the interviews they claimed that they did, um, as it happened, I went round um, uh, Trent State Prison, which is a maximum security prison in in, uh, in America. And I spoke to the warder there and said, did you have these FBI guys coming around interviewing any of your um, serial killers? And they said, oh, yeah, we found one or two who were prepared to talk to them. In other words, the, the, the sample, even from the starting point, the sample they had was highly selective. It was a very small sample that they talked to, perhaps. Um, I think I think it was, it was a 23, something like that. Um, wow. Very small sample of people they spoke to. Um, and they were highly selective, they were volunteers. So they tended to be capable, intelligent, <laughs> right. white individuals, um, well, not at all representative of, of, of serial killers at large. And that, then they, yeah, that's an interesting yeah. point, Doctor, because right now this show Mindhunters, which is on Netflix, you know, is showing these kind of most famous or infamous serial killers uh, and it's really not a, a broad representation of all offenders for sure, for certain. It's not that. And also the interview process was totally um, unstructured, never systematically analyzed. They just pulled out these ideas of organized, disorganized offenders, which we've shown in a number of publications just doesn't hold water if you actually do the proper research on it, collect the data and, and, and analyze it properly. Um, in fact, if you're going to commit murders and get away with it over time, you've got to be reasonably organized. Well, so the idea that this, this disorganized serial killers is, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but the, um, the, 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 it was never a proper interview schedule anyway. Um, and it was, it was never properly analyzed. Um, so um, that, that, that was another reason why I decided we had to start doing some proper research in this area. And now I, you know, I published lots of papers, and you mentioned the textbook called Investigative Psychology that that brings together uh, um, summarizes a lot of the research that's been done over the years. I mean, I've now had about a hundred doctoral students, um, a number of them are now senior professors around around the world, um, and uh, um, I've lost count of the number of ma masters students I've had, but they've all done interesting research and published very widely. So it's now a great research literature. And the, the, the people at Quantico never, never really became involved in that, although they have 
over recent years, um, they've been very, the people who are there now have been very interested in, in the research I've done and my, my students and colleagues. And they have started doing a bit more research. And in fact, quite um, a, a very capable uh, doctoral student of mine who became a colleague of mine at Liverpool University, eventually took a job at City University in New York. Uh, Gabriel Salfati and Dr. Salfati, I know, has been doing some serious research with the FBI now. Um, so they, they've moved on from those early days. But those early guys, um, uh, they, they, they really just um, were operating like any police officer would, who has the chance to talk to a criminal and, and, and get, find, find out a bit about them. But of course, what happens is, if you've spoken to a serial killer, that gives you a real sort of uh, badge, um, some sort of significance in the public eye, even though what you've got from them may be very misleading. We know the, a lot of serial killers are pathological liars and um, really will, will give you the, the account that they want to. Um, um, uh, Bundy uh, would talk to anyone um, you know, because he just enjoyed talking off about uh, about himself and his activities. Right. So, you know, they all of the these things, um, they just um, they 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 started. Particularly, John Douglas started living off having spoken to these guys. It's a very strange uh, phenomenon. This that if you've spoken to a really nasty criminal, somehow or other, it, it gives you some significance in the public eye even if you've not actually done anything very useful with what they've said to you. Right. And I mean, he's made an industry. He's just book after book with ghostwriters as well. I don't even know if he wrote uh, one of the books that I read. So I'm not really sure, but he's sold a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and I've done, I've contributed to a lot of television documentaries over the years. And what I've realized is that all they want to do, these television producers is, is, is to tell the crime story because that's what people are interested in. Crime fiction is is what grabs people. The story of a crime is what is what people want to hear about. But they want to have a reason. They want to have an excuse for telling those crime stories. And so they bring in an expert to, to comment one way or the other on the, on those um, on those people and what they've done. And that makes it seem as if there's some serious intention. But in fact, I've stopped contributing to um, nine out of 10 invitations I get to, to comment on documentaries I turn down because I know they're just going to take a few seconds clip here and there from me to to make their program seem a bit more serious when all they're, all they're actually wanting to do is to tell the story. Interesting. Well, my experience with some of these true crime, so-called true crime documentaries, is they're not that true. So, uh, very selective facts. So, uh, particularly the West Memphis Three documentaries. But, Doctor, we are now at forty minutes. Is there anything else you would like to cover, or anything that I've missed? Um, no. Well, just this last point, actually. Okay. I just like to Please. finally. Um, we we don't expect um, fiction to be really uh, that close to fact when when we when we watch exciting television stories um, and uh, we shouldn't be surprised when these documentaries that present themselves as fact 
drawn a lot upon fiction. And the, these two things mold into each other in a, a lot of the documentaries. So there, this, that's a central point I'd like to get across to people is they really have to take the accounts that are given in the public eye uh, very cautiously with a large pinch of salt that um, that really um, there is a de developing research discipline. And I've noticed in some crime fiction now, some of my work is actually quoted, but without obviously saying that it comes from what I've written, but it's practically the words taken straight out of my book, um, Criminal Shadows or Mapping Murder in particular, or even Forensic Psychology for Dummies. People are beginning to draw on that material um, for um, particularly for fiction. Um, so I think the word is getting out there that good science in the end will survive. Excellent. All right. So it was Dr. David Cantor, C-A-N-T-E-R, Criminal Shadows, Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Great book, too, by the way. A lot, a lot of insight for me. As a layperson, I learned a lot. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of material on my website, by the way. Oh, okay. I've, put a, I've put a lot of papers and uh, there are videos and, um, and my blog and links to my Twitter account. DavidCanter.com. All one word, uh, right? All, all one word, DavidCanter.com. I am I'm more than happy. I've spent all these years writing this stuff. I want people to read it. Excellent. Well, it's D-A-V-I-D-C-A-N-T-E-R.com. Is that correct? Good talking to you, William. Okay, excellent. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, bye-bye.